Welcome to GeoInteresting, presented by the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. For today's podcast, we sat down with Vint Cerf, Chief Internet Evangelist for Google, who's widely known as a father of the internet. Cerf's career spans more than 45 years, from his work on ARPANET, a predecessor to the internet, to leading the engineering behind the first commercial email service. He spoke with us about his role in the creation of today's internet, how this connectivity has impacted society, and what he sees for the future of technology. Stay tuned for GeoInteresting. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. We're excited to have you here. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Good. I was wondering if you could start by just telling us a little bit about your role in the creation of ARPANET and the transition to what we now know as the internet. Um, did you realize the magnitude of it at the time and how, just how much our society would come to rely on it? So this is uh, question number 101, actually. <laughs> a lot of people wonder about that. Uh, I was a graduate student at UCLA during the period when the ARPANET was being built. Uh, I didn't have anything to do with the uh, design and construction of the packet switches, which were called interface message processors, or IMPs for short. Uh, that was uh, done by a company called Bolt, Baranek & Newman in Cambridge, Massachusetts. One of the primary architects of the uh, ARPANET packet switch, or the IMP, was Robert Kahn, who later figures very uh, uh, significantly in the development of the Internet. Uh, but he and I met when I was at UCLA. I was the guy writing the software to uh, sort of kick the tires of this ARPANET idea. Uh, the success of the ARPANET uh, led the Defense Department to um, speculate about the use of computers in command and control. Uh, the, one of the people whose idea um, started the ARPANET project uh, was J.C.R. Licklider, who was actually a psychologist. He wasn't a computer engineer. Uh, he knew a lot about acoustics and became part of the Boltburn and Newman crowd because that's what they focused on for quite a long time. But his idea uh, was that computers could be used for non-numerical processing. And indeed, uh, as the ARPANET project um, uh, unfolded, a lot of non-numerical processing uh, was done. Uh, electronic mail was invented, or networked electronic mail was invented by Ray Tomlinson in 1971, uh, resting on the shoulders of other similar kinds of messaging systems, but they only ran in one time-sharing machine. Uh, Bob Kahn uh, left Bolt, Baranek, and Newman in 1972 and joined ARPA. And he started a program he called Internetting and uh, came out to my offices at Stanford University in 1973, the spring of 73, and, and announced that we had a problem. Of course, my reaction was, what do you mean we? Uh, and he said, well, if we're going to use computers in command and control, we'll have to put the computers in airborne vehicles, ships at sea, and mobile vehicles, not just fixed installations, which is what the ARPANET uh, was uh, used to, uh, to serve. So we spent six months trying to figure out, you know, how would you make a bunch of different kinds of packet nets, packet radio, packet satellite, and the ARPANET, and by the way, Ethernet, which was invented at Xerox Park, which is in 1973, uh, by Bob Metcalf uh, in May of 73, is about a mile and a half from my office at Stanford. So we have at least four different network technologies that we were trying to figure out how you would meld together. And uh, the, the solution to that problem became known as TCP, the Transmission Control Protocol, which after several iterations turned into TCP IP, so we split off the internet protocol from the original TCP layer. 
So the question then is, you know, what did, what did we imagine was going to happen? And I think the ARPANET experience informed our expectations of Internet. So now you want, might wonder, well, you know, did, do we have any idea how big this was going to get? And I think the answer is yes, we did. Uh, we couldn't, couldn't be assured mm -hmm. that it would become a global phenomenon. But we knew it had to work all around the world to support the military's need because military needs could be anywhere on the planet. So we designed it to be global in scope. We carefully did not use um, national uh, identifiers as, as are used in the telephone system mm -hmm. because we figured the military had to be able to show up anywhere in the world and uh, execute, uh, including command and control. You certainly wouldn't want to have to go and ask the country you're about to invade for access to its uh, internet address space in order to do command right. and control. That would be silly. So, uh, so I think it's fair to say that we had a fairly rich sense mm -hmm. that this uh, had to be a global, globally uh, accessible system. Mm -hmm. It wasn't commercially available, however, until 1989. And from my point of view, that's like 16 years into the program, mm -hmm. from 73 to 89. But in that year, um, commercial services were started with the permission of the Federal Networking Council um, and, uh, the, of course, the net took off. It, it took off in even more dramatic ways uh, after 1991 when Tim Berners-Lee at CERN in Switzerland in Geneva developed the World Wide Web. Well, and it's interesting, you know, talking about the advent of commercial, the commercial side of it, we're going through a sort of a similar thing now in the geospatial realm with all of these companies coming into the market, commercial, you know, small satellites and everything. Um, what do you see as that for the future of this industry? You know, how do you think that'll change what we do, or what do you think? Well, I'm sure that it will change what you do for several reasons. The first thing I would observe is that uh, in the history of um, uh, geospatial imagery, satellite-based imagery, uh, it's not an inexpensive business to launch a satellite right. and to gather the data. And the government was the only game in town. That's <laughs> correct. And what is interesting here, though, and, it, and it's a phenomenon that we must be sensitive to, is that just because it costs a lot of money to get the data does not necessarily mean the data is valuable. And we need to make a distinction between value and cost. And that means as the uh, evolving online and open source environment uh, continues to grow, a great deal of open source information may be free of charge and quite valuable especially if we combine it in uh, smart ways with data that is harder to get. And so we want to uh, be smart about uh, how we integrate information that we obtain from multiple sources uh, and how we uh, understand what the implications of that data are. And to do that, you need all source intelligence. Of course, NGA contributes in a very uh, special way to uh, part of that all source initiative. Well, given your work on the ARPANET project, you're obviously no stranger to federal government investment in, you know, innovative technologies. How do you see the government and the private industry working together, and how can we best work together to innovate? Well, uh, the U.S. government has the not only the, the capacity, but maybe even the obligation to undertake research which is very risky and which is too risky for industry to uh, attempt. 
For example, if you think about it, uh, the ARPANET project started in 1969. ARPANET was retired in 1990. That's 21 years. Mm -hmm. The National Science Foundation got involved in networking in 1981 or 82. They're still involved today, and here it is, 2017. The NSFNet, one of the major backbones of the, uh, of the Internet, uh, was started around 1986 or so and was not retired until 1995. So we're talking eight, nine, ten, or many, many you know, even decades of uh, persistent investment in uh, development of these new technologies. Most industry is incapable of making such long-term investments. So the government role is to take risk in science uh, and technology and engineering, remove as much risk as possible to the point where the venture capital guys are willing to accept the remaining risk in order to launch a business. Uh, I think the government could actually push that just a little further. Uh, they might get out of the lab and into prototypes and things like that, because by removing risk, you encourage uh, the investment by the private sector. So the partnership there is this significant risk-taking for high payoff, high risk uh, work, followed by significant investment uh, and expansion. The internet is a good example of that. I'm sure that if we added up all the money spent by the private sector compared to the amount spent by the U.S. government across all the various networks that it uh, contributed to the internet and all the applications and protocols, that uh, the U.S. government investment would be dwarfed dramatically mm -hmm. by the amount of money spent in the private sector. And that continues to be true today as the internet penetrates into economies that are, uh, are still developing. And speaking of the internet, you know, obviously connecting all of us, we, it's really kind of broken down some of those geographical barriers in that we now have access to information all over the world. And in some ways that's really good, and in other ways it opens us up to vulnerabilities. So what do you think are some of the biggest pros and cons of that connectivity? Those are very good questions. Um, it's pretty clear that, uh, that when the World Wide Web was finally launched and became visible, especially you know, through Netscape Communications, that an avalanche of content showed up on the net from people who just wanted to share what they knew. This, this avalanche of content uh, stimulated several things. First of all, uh, the web made it easier for people to put information into the system. They had to learn how to write HTML until we had applications that did that more or less automatically. Uh, and then there was so much information that uh, search engines had to be developed in order to find things that were of interest on the net. But the striking thing to me is that as the web expands, um, people are discovering each other, even if they didn't know uh, anything about uh, this other party, except they met on the, you know, a common website and discovered that they had a common interest. So this sharing of information, I think, was pretty dramatic. At the same time, uh, the interconnecting of every computer uh, on the face of the planet also uh, opened up vulnerabilities, especially when you think about personal computers, which were thought to be personal computers and weren't connected to anything. It was your computer that you used in isolation. So a lot of the software that went along with personal computing didn't contemplate the possibility that they're connected to every other computer in the world and possibly vulnerable to various forms of malware. Malware was not invented on the, on the internet. Malware was around with floppy disks, mm -hmm. and you know, people would copy programs or, or you know, share things that you know, maybe they shouldn't have. And some people knew that, and so they would put viruses and, and worms on the disks, and when the disk booted up, you know, the, the worm came along with it. So that wasn't new. 
Uh, but we do have serious problems with abuse on the network. People make, uh, make use of their ability to access anything, anywhere, uh, to attempt to penetrate uh, or to install uh, key loggers and Trojan horses and things like that. So this is a big challenge for people who write the software of uh, internet-connected things. And as the Internet of Things begins to um, expand, that same problem will arise as already. And so we have new responsibilities, I think, as programmers uh, to pay a lot more attention to the vulnerability of the software. But also ordinary users have to start paying attention to safer networking. And so one of the things that and, uh, I'm pleased to see is an increased attention to what's called two-factor authentication. In the government, we use the common access mm -hmm. cards with their chips in order to identify ourselves strongly to the mm -hmm. system. At Google, uh, we issue uh, similar kinds of uh, chips that you can plug into the USB and strongly authenticate yourself. So even if somebody gets their username and password, they still can't get in because they don't have your chip. Mm -hmm. So these sorts of um, concepts of, of safer networking have to penetrate in the general public mm -hmm. in addition to um, being a responsibility of the uh, programming uh, community to uh, minimize the number of bugs that can be exploited. It does raise one other interesting problem. If we have bazillions of uh, devices in the Internet of Things, it's almost certain that whatever software is there has bugs in it. So we're going to have to figure out how to uh, download and uh, or upgrade the software to fix the bugs. Mm -hmm. But now we have to make sure the device that's uh, ingesting the software can figure out whether the software is coming, is coming from a legitimate source as opposed to a hacker. And so there's a whole ecosystem here that needs to be um, further refined if we are going to take make use of this global and connected environment. What do you see as the future of that global connected environment? I mean, where do you see us going? I'm, uh, well, first of all, it's been very interesting to watch various technologies merge into uh, the Internet. When Bob and I were doing the original design, when we got to the Internet protocol layer, one of the things we uh, very carefully decided is that the packets of the Internet would not know how they're being carried, just like a postcard doesn't know that it's going in an airplane or a bicycle. That's important because every time new communication technologies have come along, uh, the Internet protocol just sits on top. And so the Internet keeps ingesting new communication capabilities. Uh, and in some sense, uh, when mobiles, and particularly smartphones, were invented just 10 years ago in 2007, they were Internet-enabled. And the consequence of that is that suddenly we had mobile access to the Internet, access wherever we were, wherever we could get a signal, uh, and that opened up um, use, use of the Internet anytime, anywhere. It also meant that the content of the net was made available to the mobile, which reinforced the value of the mobile. That we'll see more high-speed uh, mobile radio uh, communications. Uh, we'll see a lot more sharing of radio spectrum. Uh, we'll certainly see many, many more programmable devices showing up at home and at work and in the car and maybe even on our persons or even in our persons as sensors and things like that. So um, it will we'll be just surrounded by, uh, by software and communications, which means that uh, we will also have to be a lot more attentive to uh, protecting against abusive behaviors, mm -hmm. uh, abusive practices uh, on the net. Um, so it's going to be one of those never-ending chores to keep people safe. Great.
Well, I really enjoyed talking with you today. Do you have anything else that you want to add well, I, for our uh, listeners? I, I want to say to the people who are listening that, uh, especially if they are part of the intelligence community, uh, that their work is very much appreciated. They don't hear this often enough. And for ordinary citizens like me, uh, knowing a little bit about what it takes to gather and analyze good quality uh, intelligence uh, and operating essentially in, uh, in, behind, in the shadows on purpose, uh, these people should be uh, told how much and how, how much the work is appreciated uh, and uh, how much uh, I think we depend on them to keep uh, our country safe. Thank you so much. We appreciate you joining us today. Always a pleasure. Geointeresting is produced by NGA's Office of Corporate Communications. Never miss an episode by subscribing on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and visit www.nga.mil. Thanks for listening. <laughs>